but there is one specific approach the phenomenon responds to more than the others and it should be a little concerning for us as a species Welcome back. I'm here again with Nathaniel Gillis. Nathaniel, welcome back, my friend. It's good to see you. Thank you, my friend. It's always great to be with you. You're one of my favorite hosts to be with, and I'm looking forward to this interview. Well, you're one of the most viewed interviews that I've done so far, so Mm -hmm. you're definitely up there. So people enjoy learning more about this topic and different perspectives on what this field where it could be going and what the nature of reality is so Mm -hmm. so tell us about something that you refer to as the parasitic model what is that what does it mean so in this field there are theories that most researchers operate off of all of their hypothesis is rooted in one model or another and In doing this research, I've come to a conclusion as where I'm at right now, I should say, is that the closest model I've witnessed to what this phenomenon represents is what's called parasitism or the parasitic model. In this model in particular, the host itself survives, not because the entity believes in the host or loves the host or wants to help the host. The host survives so that the parasite can survive as well. And so specifically within the context of the hybridization program, we are dealing with a parasitic presence who grooms people into being the host. And then once they are able to nurture and facilitate the entity, then you see the evolution of this phenomenon take place. And so that is strictly within the lens and context of the hybridization program it is deeply parasitic. And I should say, not just the hybridization program, maybe even the entire phenomenon itself, parasitic in nature. And if that's the case, then that would explain why it can both be a threat to us while not wiping all of us out as a species at the same time. So both of those faults can be held within conscience at the same time without compromising one or the other, if that makes sense. So definitionally, mm-hmm. Who was the parasite, who was the hybrid, and who was the host? Or what, I should say, what, right? Well, when people begin the subject matter, even begin researching it, 99.9% of the time, they approach it through the lens of ufology, mainly because it's only in ufology that people are having these kind of discussions. And it's the most modern incarnation of this phenomenon. And so usually have spoken to many people about this. Okay, what do you think the hybridization program is about? And so immediately they go to case studies within ufology, and it's kind of structured around that. And very, very little do they ever go back into history, and very rarely, I should say, to go back into the footprints of history and say, okay, what does history have to tell us? Is this a new phenomenon like it wants us to believe it is, or is this just a repackaged reincarnated intelligence that has evolved through history according to our awareness of it. And so that's why when you look at it outside of the context of ufology, you look at it and make eye contact for what it has been, is, and will be, then you start having case studies that really kind of push the envelope 
push this narrative beyond the four walls that which most ufologists want it to stay in. And so that's what I've been doing is kind of breaking down those barriers and including case studies to get a better understanding of it. But yeah, so that's not just what I've been doing, but that's what I'm going to be talking about this coming February at the Awakening Conference, kind of build that model. And at the very least, hopefully by the end of it, we will finally be staring in the darkness that has been staring into us. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When the United States and China clash, the world will never be the same, especially when forces beyond reality threaten to intervene. What if the United States went to war with the People's Republic of China? How would these rivals fight for supremacy on land, sea, air, and across the stochastic streams of time? What wonder weapons would be unleashed? What horrors would emerge from the irradiated sludge of the South China Sea? What heroes would rise and forever change the course of history? Tread into the deepest and darkest dimensions of the multiverse, gaze through a kaleidoscope of fractured realities, and bear witness to the disturbing visions of World War III from today's greatest minds in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Weird World War, China. Available now from Bain Books at Bain.com. Now, where's the Awakening Conference being it's held? Gonna, it's going to be in Manchester, February 17th this year. So I'll be flying out there. I'll be lecturing inside, next to it, Steve Mara, Dr. Barry Fitzgerald, Paul St. Clair, and a bunch of other researchers. But we're going to be covering the dark side of ufology. And because the hybridization program is kind of a subcategory to that, I'll be discussing this subject matter. But yeah, so at the end of the day, that's what I've been researching as of late, because I believe it fits. If we're dealing with an intelligence that is monitoring the fertility of women from the ages of puberty on up to the point where they have to get hysterectomies, we have a problem. Dr. Carla Turner had a case study where these things would not leave this child alone. She was 10 years old to the point where they had to give her an emergency hysterectomy. And when that took place, the phenomenon ended its interest in her. So this does seem to be parasitic in nature. And the only reason we have not had insights and fresh revelations into this phenomenon is because we've only seen it through the ufological lens. We've not allowed ourselves to go beyond the mask. So the human is the host, effectively, right? One of them. I'm going to introduce the subject here. I'll answer that question in a little bit, but I have to kind of build the foundation for it yeah. before people, because, you know, at first blush, people are like, okay, yeah, they are. That's the only thing they've ever been taught. They've never been allowed or even had a reason to think outside of that. But I assure you and all of your listeners and viewers that if we go beyond the scope of ufology and see the various incarnations of this intelligence, then and only then can we get a better perspective of what it's doing and what it's trying to do with a majority within ufology. And in terms of the parasite, what's that? Well, we're looking at the self-replication of species. It's mm -hmm. not just splicing DNA. It's literally the implantation and impregnation of consciousness within the human host. Again, 
the theological lens, this, you know, the Genesis 6 narratives, and I'm sure you've heard of that, and I'm sure your viewers have heard that as well. But that, again, what we're dealing with is a mixture. It's like, a, I'm going to say this, it's like a hybridized version of possession and pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And so, if you look at this intelligence strictly through historical perspectives, this hybridization program has existed. This is not a modern phenomenon, and yet there are people, not just in the field as researchers, but the intelligence wants us to believe that it's a modern phenomenon. And here's why I believe that's the case, because if we can all agree that this is a new phenomenon, then we have the intellectual obligation to ignore older case studies, mm-hmm. behavioral patterns that have united all of these accounts interwoven through the fabric of time. And so if I could convince you as a researcher that I'm new, you'll never have the confidence or even the interest to go back in time and see where I was. Does it make sense? And so that's what I've been able to do is go through time and say, okay, if this is not a modern phenomenon and just a new incarnation of an ancient proto-intelligence, what does history have to say? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. To advertise on Through Glass Darkly, email ads at gmail.com. And it has a lot to say, my friend. We'll get into that later on. Who would you say kind of has the best take on this? Not modern, but historically. Like which historical traditions, religious traditions, mm-hmm. intellectual traditions? Okay, here's where I think we are. We are all groping in the darkness, and a lot of us have a bigger handle on what it is. But that's limited to the hand, right? I touch it, but it, but I don't understand it. I don't know what it is. I know I can feel it, right? So between my hand and my eye, I think I have an idea. That's what we're doing. And even more than that, I think that through history, there are various cultures who are all witnessing the same phenomenon, but they've either only encapsulated a portion of it and forgot the rest or ignore the rest, or they've interpreted everything through a theological lens. And so, to answer your question, all of them and none of them, they all contribute to the overall picture of this phenomenon, but I don't believe that all of that one is more accurate with its depiction. I mean, even if you look at the evangelical model, you know, okay, these are all horns and hooves. Okay, until they're not, mm-hmm. what do you do then? You know, and here's the question I've been asking myself as of late. Okay, if it is a demon and it plays by demon rules, I'm put it in a real simple elementary grammar, it must play by demon rules. Well, what if it doesn't? What if it transcends your model? What are you going to say then? And at that point, you know, their model falls apart too. But what I'm realizing is there have been a lot of projections, both by religiosity and secularism, especially with materialism projections that we have put on the phenomenon itself, and the phenomenon does not play by those rules. That's why when people say, okay, yeah, Nathaniel acts like he's been doing rigorous scientific study. Sure, so it's Jacques Filet, or not. Mm -hmm. 
What about John Keel? Nope. See, the problem is that even parapsychology, yes, yeah, sure, we can get the dimensions of the chessboard just right. Doesn't mean we know how to play the game. To play the game, you have to play the game. So what we're realizing, again, is that each and every approach is specifically scientific approaches. The phenomenon takes a personal and eclipses everything. I got my camera out, turns it off. And so there are certain ways to approach the phenomenon to where it is less confrontational. And one of those ways is what I'm doing, surprisingly enough. And so that's why when people, you know, okay, he's not a scientist. No, I'm not. A lot of people in the field aren't scientists. They didn't say that to John Keel. He was a demonologist too. So, you know, but my point is, though, is, is that, like I said, there are various approaches that we're taking to the phenomenon. Some of it is scientific, but there is one specific approach the phenomenon responds to more than the others. And it should be a little concerning for us as a species. Say more about that. Okay. Well, if you look at this, I guess this entire field is within the context of ufology. The very first time these beings manifested was not during abductions, was not during, okay, we're on spaceships. They were responding to homemade Ouija boards, my friend. They were responding to individuals building an altar. It's called an earthen altar where it's that's made with stones that are uncut. Building altars in their attics and performing ritual magic in order to conjure this intelligence. And then and only then did it manifest. It's not an accident. They manifested the skull experiment, seances back in the 90s in England, performing seances. And in the middle of one of their experiments, there is an alien, allegedly, shows up. They call him Mr. Blue. And when he manifested, John, a profound, unspeakable terror filled the room. And they tried to put the genie back in the bottle. All the seances were done. Blow the candles out, turn the lights on. We're getting out of here. Why? Because we don't know what that is. But what we do know is that it's responding to our seances and it's responding to our incantations. So for all of those who are going to listen to this, hear me out. The purpose of the incantation is incarnation. There's something in the words of the seance. There's something in the phonetic rendering of the ritual that these beings responded to. So that's why I believe as ufology, as a field, we have to expand our parameters and be honest with when, how, and where these beings manifested. Can we go a little bit deeper into this example? I'm actually fascinated wow. by it. Oh, it's an incredible connection. Mr. Blue? Mr. Blue, that's what they call him, Mr. Blue, because he was he had a blue face, but it was the same bulbous eyes, same skull shape and everything. It's not the first time. You know, John D. and Edward Kelly, when they were performing their rituals, they had conjured some kind of intelligence that was encased in a, a cloud and it was lights shooting inside and out, out of it and it was floating in the room and they called them little men that were inside of it that were looking out so again what's happened is the field the majority of the field is rooted in secularism in materialism nuts and bolts and yet, that's being disingenuous with the phenomenon itself. That's why we have to start again. This is what I'm saying. Start at square one. Who did they respond to first? Well, they respond, you know, at least a modernity, they responded to people like Albert Bender. 
building earthen altars in his attic. What was he doing? He wasn't doing scientific experiments. To my knowledge, that's what people would want us to believe, right? That's what we, we were taught. Oh, my God, it's all science. No, it wasn't. That was ritual magic. When was he around? Like, where? where and 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. United States? I believe. Yes. Albert Benner. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Him and a guy named George Hunt Williamson. Again, and you know what they were doing? Literally creating a homemade Ouija board in the entity that they came in contact with. Okay, he's an extraterrestrial. See, why aren't we treating the subject like we do which era literature? The same manifestations, the same methodologies. But for some reason, this phenomenon, as it has done throughout history, it leans into one incarnation more than the other. And by doing that, it kind of plays into the archetype of, okay, do you want me to be an extraterrestrial? Okay. But, you know, proof is in the pudding, my friend. And I hate to say it like that, but it's, it's very elementary. People can say, oh, how pedestrian of a phrase, Nathaniel. I don't care. The point is, that is what they were responding to. And so this is what I've been telling people as of late. If you want disclosure, we've had it. We got disclosure as a species when the very first altar was built. I can keep going in that direction if you, if you want to. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so what were the experiments called that generated this Mr. Blue, the skull? The skull experiments. Yes, sir. I'll send you a link to it after the show. But matter well, of like fact, when, like that was, was in the time period uh, late, I think it was late, 80, late 80s, early 90s, I believe. I believe. And it's like S-K-U-L-L experiments? S-C-O-L-E. Okay. Yeah. I believe it was in the 90s or 80s, one of the two. But, you know, but anyways, like somebody's point, last name, like Skull or something. It had something to do with its location, very much okay. so. Yeah. So, but anyway, so it was during these experiments, they had two different areas of, of you know, whatever they're doing. They had a parlor, the main parlor, main living room. And then they had another experiment going downstairs. People go downstairs and, and perform their rituals. Well, while they were downstairs, this entity manifested and this is the way they framed it. Think about the language being employed. It had teleported its own body into the room and was walking around the room like this and had a voice coming out of it. And at first blush, one of the practitioners thought that it was her guide. And then it started walking towards her. And she basically had a nervous breakdown and left. Because whatever these things are, again, you know, we don't know what they are in terms of origin, but its nature was so horrifying. They canceled everything. But, you know, again, this is why I believe and others that I'm working with is that the ET hypothesis is just a new incarnation of a proto-intelligence. And this is why when we compartmentalize the field, okay, yeah, oh my God, it's an alien. Okay, you're just looking at the newest incarnation. If you want to look at the proto-intelligence, look at what it's responding to, and it's responding to incantations. Okay, so how would this fit into, so you're familiar with Grush and allegations yeah. that we have biologics and have recovered craft of some sort. Right. Where would they fit in this hypothesis? Or they may not fit at all. It could just be that that's a se- like it's just separate, potentially ETs. Well, again, I would suggest this. When you're looking at metamaterials being collected, now we're going to go not just into Jack Parsons, which we touched on the last interview. Mm -hmm. We're going to people like Travis Taylor, 
who right now is nestling himself in a desert in New Mexico. And guess what he's doing? He's a very scientific man. Are you talking Travis Taylor or Tim Taylor? Because there's the Tim Taylor's the one who was close to the Bledsoe's. He was the yes. one. Yes. Okay, Tim Taylor. Got it. Got it. Yes. Got yep. It. Yep. And they got all kinds of names for him. Dude. What was the one that, what did Diana Walsh super call him? Tyler? Tyler. Durden. That's hilarious. Yep. And so what we're dealing with, yeah, is, is the fact that, okay, so essentially what he's doing, again, is he's building an earthen altar. And that ought to tell us something, that even people that are working within our government know. Okay, yeah, you can go out there and use the same old antiquated paradigm. I got my EVP. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then when they do that, the phenomenon has the ability to shut everything off. And then for a fleeting moment, it makes contact with the human condition. And you know what it's doing? It's building an altar. That's alarming, my friend, because again, it moves the narrative and it shifts it into a direction. A lot of these secularists and nuts and bolts materialists, they do not want that because it transcends their blueprint. It's bigger than big. And there's a lot to be answered for, but that's what they're doing. And I believe that because of that, I personally question the ETH. The model doesn't fit, and it shouldn't, if we're honest with it. Okay, so you said you could go deeper with this topic. Let's dive in. All right, my friend. So, yeah. so let's look at this. I am to believe, at least by researchers, and if not the phenomenon itself, that in history, the primordial man decided to extinguish his campfire, decides to go into his corridors and begins to write out a very meticulous incantation. Uh, made it up, actually. Just Yeah, well, yeah. by the way, where do these incantations come from? Are they based on there we go. rituals, like Roman rituals? Right. Are they based on Kabbalistic mm -hmm. rituals? Are they, like, as you were just kind of getting into, just yeah. like made up? Right. How does this work? Yeah. Okay. So that's what I've been asking myself as of late too, because it, it's germane. It matters. So I'm to believe that the primordial man decides to extinguish his campfire, goes into his quarters, puts pen to paper, whatever, puts quill to paper, I don't care, goes in and begins to write a system of letters. Each and every one of them have prophetic and profound meaning, even to the degree that if one of them is not correctly phonetically rendered, it affects the efficacy of the entire incantation itself. All of that, the way they articulate it, the voice that flexes, all of that, he's supposed to be doing. And then when he actually uses the incantation, this phenomenon responds to it. I'm supposed to believe that was on accident. Absolutely not. See, it's just like when we deal with these crash retrieval programs where the phenomenon will seed us with curiosity. I believe that's 100% the case with the incantations. I believe that they created a ladder out of letters and decided to incarnate within them. One Hasidic rabbi said that God speaks a word and steps into it. What if, I believe this is the case, but let's just, for those who are a little bit not convinced, what if these are ladders of letters and they baited us with some form of, well, they did. Demonologists in early, early antiquity called it magical technologies. Mm -hmm. So it's not just technology they're seeding us with. It's some other form of esotericism. 
And that's why each and every time these researchers go out there, they would do these incantations, build an altar, the phenomenon would manifest, even to the point where now, 10 minutes away from me, there was a hub of government researchers who were performing these same rituals and incantations, and the phenomenon was temporarily manifesting metamaterial, just enough for them to photograph it, collect some, and then the phenomenon would take it back. So, so, so in other words, what you're saying is these craft, if if true, and all this stuff is recovered, there is a potential that they could be manifested objects or apportations that were seeded by the phenomena. We call it demons, jinn, whatever you want to call it. Right? Yeah, I don't have a correct term. You know, it stretches me beyond my vocabulary. That's why I get really ticked. Oh, he believes they're all demons. People say that because they've never actually took the intellectual effort to listen to what I say. You know what I mean? So anyways, that's my little soapbox. But yeah, so whatever we're dealing with, it transcends that microcosm. But one thing is absolutely obvious here. Anybody with a cursory knowledge of this literature and phenomenon, we realize it's not consciousness or nuts and bolts. It's not esotericism or science. And what the phenomenon has allowed us to do, I should say, is compartmentalize them to where they are exclusive. Okay? It's a duality. Yeah, it's an end both, right? Absolutely. Both end. Yes, sir. So that's where we are. Okay. So what do you think is going on with this broader, quote-unquote, disclosure? Like, if you put your... Mm -hmm phenomenological hat on Mm -hmm. and you were looking at this from the perspective of whatever this is Mm -hmm. what would the purpose of pushing and seeding for a disclosure be alternatively it could be that they're pushing against it i don't know like well who is they the government or the phenomenon the phenomenon it no it doesn't want i mean okay so okay the, the the amount of value governmental disclosure would offer us is predicated on their approach to the phenomenon. You know, there are different factions within our federal government. There are some that, because of the vocabulary lacking, I should say, and in the absence of vocabulary, they kind of hypothesize, okay, these are demons, or or the closest characteristic of these beings are demonic. Others are saying, you know, hey, these are extraterrestrials. All the theories are on the table. But one thing is apparent, and I believe this is the next faction within our government, there are some that have proven, and they know, it's not a new phenomenon, this is a new incarnation. And so, you know, okay, it's ETH, 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 while they're out there digging up material culture and archaeology. And this is why it's so important we're dealing with researchers. Truthfully, the best thing we could possibly do as a field is not look to the future for revelation. It's to retrace our steps into the past, because even right now, ufology is starting, like I said before, discussing the hybridization program. Wouldn't you know they're asking the same questions that demonology was asking thousands of years ago, and yet this is supposed to be the most mature field? No, (laughs) sorry, not really. But right now, again, we've been asking these questions for a long time, and the reason we're asking the same questions is because the self-same draconian shadow was moving across Europe, crossing and stretching itself to the vault, and manifesting all over the world. 
So again, we were asking the same questions, seeing the same shadow. Why? Because we were seeing the same intelligence. And what this phenomenon has done is not just convinced us that it's a novel, modern incarnation, but it's actually leaned into that because it does not want us, again, to retrace the bloody footprints. If we go back to the beginning, what were we doing as a species? Building altars, ritual magic, incantations. If you were to go back, let's say in the late Iron Age, hold up and say, hey, listen, that entity you're in contact and with and building an altar to, that's an extraterrestrial, they would laugh you to scorn. The only difference, again, between that practitioner and the altar is the way we have interpreted it. And I think that kind of puts us into this kind of nebulous position because we really don't know what it is. We just know what it's responding to. And that in and of itself is scary. Is there an angelic side to this? Well, these well, beings have describe been... as angels, you know, without putting words in your mouth. I'm not trying to do that. Right. Well, so we have to be careful. I'm not saying you, but there are a lot of people that'll hop in the comments and he's, you know, Nathaniel's negative Nancy. No kidding. That's my research is to pick out the darker nuances of the phenomenon, right? Yeah. It's like going to McDonald's hoping for a freaking burrito. You're not going to get it. Go to Taco Bell. That's another elementary <laughs> phrase, I guess. But yeah, so I do look at the darker nuances of it. And if you're not familiar with my work, familiarize yourself before you get into this, because you'll be like everybody else, the Nathaniel's negative Nancy. I'm not. I'm out there trying to get people to, to understand more of the darker aspects of this. But in terms of nuts and bolts, I got wings and I got a sword. Absolutely not. Matter of fact, even more than that, there have been times, multiple case studies, actually numerous, where the phenomenon will manifest as angels in order to access and garner consent and compliance within the experiencer. Mm -hmm. And so, do I believe that there is... I don't know. See, the, the entire narrative of an angel has been very much misunderstood throughout history. You know, even the term fallen angel, it did not exist in the Holy Writ. Never did. Those two words were never found together. So, we would have to go back into Mesopotamian text and Akkadian ritual bowls to figure out what they thought an angel was. And that's a whole other show, my friend. But yeah, so do I believe that there is a, let's say, a good positive species out there that's helping us? Possibly. You know, there are accounts of miraculous healings and really, really good stuff out there. And I'm not detracting that or detracting from that, rather. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a species out there that is playing the archetype. Meanwhile, doing stuff to us, through us, and in us that we are pretty much ignorant of at this point. So, are you familiar with the Philip experiments in Canada? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Because when you talked about the skull experiments, it reminded yep. me a little bit, a little bit of that. Can you say more about that? The audience has which, no idea what I'm talking about. The Philip which experiment? Yeah. So, again, these are parapsychologists that decided to create a ghost. And it's like a tulpa, right? Like a thought form. It is. Well, like, I mean, that, far, that's what they were trying to create, right? Yes, yes. So, Philip experiment again. Press psychologists who were wanting to know if they could create a ghost, so they created characteristics, personality traits. They created a falsified history of this entity, and even named him Philip. And then they called in a group of psychics and did not give them any insights as to what they were doing. 
And sure enough, Philip came through them and began to converse, confirmed everything that they had originally written. And then they thought, okay, wow, you know, we created a ghost, but I don't believe that's true at all. People misunderstand that again, because they think in, you know, one dimensionally. Oh, wow. No, I mean, it's just like an antiquity with some of the demons that we've read about, especially within Mesopotamia literature, where if there was paranormal activity taking place in a home, the father, the husband would go to a blacksmith and he would look for an amulet. And this is awesome. One entity was created by an experience or an antiquity. You went to a blacksmith and said, I want you to create this demon. And this demon was designed to scare off other demons. It's very it's fascinating to me. And so what he did is he gives this blacksmith the dimensions of this entity. How tall he is, what he looks like, right? And in his mind, I'm just going to create this and hopefully it'll be ugly enough to scare all these other beings away. Well, at the very end of it, when the blacksmith had created this entity out of consciousness, into the hands, into the metal, and now it's shaped. The experiencer took it home, put it in a sacred space, designed for it, goes to bed. Something begins to crawl out of that statue, runs off in the night. And so what we realize is that the human consciousness and the physical avatar itself, both of them are mortal portals for whatever this intelligence represents. Might I suggest you got two men. You got the man that goes to the blacksmith. Long before the blacksmith molded the image of the entity. Now I'm talking about the other man. The entity had molded the mind into an image. And so now both of them, you see the birth of an intelligence where it knocks on the door. Sure, I'll let you think it's just you, but it's actually me. And so that's how it arrives. So there are many case studies like that. Philip, see, the Philip experiment is unique because it drives us into some rarely touched on areas regarding the subject matter. First of all, was that a real entity? Was it being made through them? And if that's the or, case, or was it an entity that assumed the characteristics right, right. of something either the experimenters came up with or there's something that it influenced them to come up uh, with there we go yes sir who is right. being thought for and most importantly my friend who is conjuring who here <laughs> that's a deep subject you know it's it's just like the incantations the man's out there in the middle of the desert thinking okay yes i'm gonna go ahead and conjure them meanwhile they didn't realize they got the incantation, walked right out to where the intelligence was. They were, in fact, being conjured. And this is just the whole paradigm that ufology it, it needs to pay attention to. And this is why it kind of bugs me. People say, okay, yeah, Nathaniel's not doing rigorous scientific research. Well, first of all, he doesn't know that. Second of all, we've done that. NIDS did that. And it tore everything apart. Put the camera up, destroy the camera. So again, there are certain ways to approach it where we have success. That's one way. But if that was the most successful way, why are our leading scientists in the field going back to the root system of this intelligence and watering it with ritual magic? Why? Because they know out of the two, 
at least right now, the phenomenon is responding more to incantations. Watch this. You ready for this? That the phenomenon wrote to conjure us. Mm. And then we're just transmitting it to paper and yep. which is why exactly right. Which is why you have to be very careful what you do because you don't even need to know according to this research mm -hmm. these rites or rituals yep. because you might be being influenced to create your own yes it's the idea see people because catholicism has dominated the space with respect to possession we think of possession as okay you know they hate us they want us all dead they want us all murdered they don't realize that if you strip it of the religious connotations possession is a way of self-replication and that's pretty much what they do and so yeah it will let us believe that we're the one conjuring them and this is what's so fascinating my friend is the entire process we're believing them okay imagine this a gentleman like okay whatever his name is travis Tucker, he's at a hotel room Okay, he gets a harebrained idea. Okay, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to McDonald's. I'm gonna Tim Keller. I'm gonna keep. Tim Keller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Keller. Yes. And so, yeah, the deal is. Okay. So, okay, you're at a hotel, right? I'm at a hotel. Okay, you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. Okay, get a Big Mac. Get in your car. Turn the car on. Leave. Where am I going? And he goes to this entire elaborate boom, 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 this spot, this spot, this spot, this spot, and then he has the audacity to claim he's conjuring them. And, you know, the paradigm itself is dangerous. And this is what it gets back to even to CE5 is just. It's dangerous because, again, if we look at it strictly through the lens of ufology and create a new program, oh, it's new. It's not, you know, whatever. We ignore the darker case studies that have a lot to say about what they do when they really get in our presence. So where are you taking this research next, uh, given this parasitic model? Well, Pollen's Elite were doing soil tests, and they were contacting this phenomenon by going to England. They did one experiment where they went to England, and they scooped up soil samples from an authentic crop circle. And they took it back to their laboratory. Their scientist deduced that there was a cellular anomaly within the soil samples. And, and accompanying this cellular anomaly was a unique energy signature. And what they then decided to do was to create a control room and went around asking for practitioners of magic specifically ones they had been in contact with throughout their research. Some of them came in and performed ritual magic inside a controlled space. Some of the experiments worked, some of them didn't. But those that did work, there was a profound manifestation of this intelligence. They then began to collect samples within their own laboratory where the phenomenon became incarnate. And it carried the same energy signature, the same cellular anomaly 
as that which they discovered in authentic crop circles. Mind you, this gets even deeper. The incantations they were leveling in that laboratory were not designed to assist people in the raising of their consciousness, mind you. Mm -mm. It was strictly designed to physically harm a person. The same energy signature. There we go. That's what everybody should be doing right now in the field. Everybody should. The same energy signature coming from the same origin, the same cellular anomaly. Now, when I say that on shows, for some reason, and I know you understand it because you got it. You're a very intelligent guy. There are a lot of people that I say one thing, they hear another. Mm -hmm. And it's annoying. What they hear me saying is that this is, this is how stupid it is. Oh, well, yeah, the intelligence was trying to harm the soil. God, no. What I'm suggesting is, yes, whoever was in that crop circle, whatever inspired that circular manifestation, the origin point, the proto-intelligence itself was in charge of both manifestations. And so, yes, that was a negative aspect of it. But there was the crop circle as well. And so what the Collins elite realized was, oh, my God, one is scientific, allegedly, in the other one is esoteric. And yet the proto-intelligence behind it operating, not the mask, not the incarnation, my friend, the actual energy, same origin. The same signature. Yeah, same signature. Now, right. Now, Steve Mira, which I'll be seeing him in February. Yes. He's my hero, man. I love him to death. He's a great researcher. But anyways... He, when I talked to him last, and I told him that, he was talking about how he had documented a cellular anomaly and an energy signature within a port in haunted houses. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what that means. If we find that these are the same energy signatures, then we're going to have to ask ourselves some tough questions, my friend. Because this, again, that would mean this did not originate in modernity. That would mean that we have to go all the way back to biblical antiquity, Mesopotamian ritual bowls, and start from the beginning, which would fit hand in hand, right, with them responding to earthen altars and incantations. So there is this sociological paradigm where it allows us to believe we're conjuring it when truthfully it's conjuring us. Thank you very much for being on the episode and <laughs> look forward to looking forward to speeking with you again, my friend. So absolutely. You if you enjoyed today's video, please hit like and subscribe and also hit the notification button so you can be notified whenever I post new content. Thank you. Now, if you're enjoying the channel and you want to support it, there are several things you can do. In fact, there are five things you can do. The first thing you can do is just buy my books. I got plenty of books out in the market right now, and I would prefer that folks buy a book rather than giving me direct support because they get something out of it. They have a real tangible product. The second way you can support me is by becoming a member on YouTube or becoming a patron on Patreon. And just go to either site and it'll explain everything.
third way you can support the channel is by checking out my merch site, which is here. There's plenty of stuff that you could get to support the channel. And I'd appreciate that you, you have it and you can wear it. Not only do you help support the channel, but you also help promote the channel. And I appreciate that. The fourth way that you can support the channel, and this is really easy, is anytime you want to buy something on Amazon, literally just go to the description below and click on any link, literally any link. The channel gets a cut of that and it costs you no extra money. You just go through the link as I'm part of the Amazon Affiliates Club. The fifth and final way you can support the channel is through donations. Now, I don't prefer these because it's more of a expression of gratitude, but you don't really get anything out of it as a subscriber to the channel. However, if you decide to do these options, there's two options. There's Buy Me A Coffee, which is a separate site. And there's also, you can go through YouTube with either a Super Chat, Super Sticker, or a Super Thanks. Again, I prefer Buy Me A Coffee because that organization takes less money than Amazon does. But either way, I appreciate any support you are willing to give the channel. So thank you very much and keep watching. I really appreciate it.